93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. Before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at thefounderhour. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Founder Hour. I'm your co-host, Pat. And in this episode, we sit down with the visionary entrepreneur, Chuck Templeton, the mastermind behind OpenTable. From his humble beginnings to revolutionizing the restaurant industry with OpenTable, Chuck's journey is a tale of innovation and determination. Tune in as we explore his inspiring story, discussing the challenges he overcame, the lessons he learned, and the impact he's made on the world of technology and dining. Here we go. You know, you grew up in Lafayette. California. Uh, what was life like for young Chuck? Yeah. So um, I, I, I sort of associate my childhood with um, Lafayette, but really was born in a little a smaller town called Martinez, which is a, like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes from Lafayette. You know, my, my dad was a mailman and my mom was a glassblower. And so it was like a, you know, lower middle class um, sort of upbringing. And, uh, you know, played in the dirt a lot and out, you know, love being outside. And, you know, we live sort of near a housing project. And so most, most of my friends were from the housing project and, um, just, you know, the, um, sort of the independence that you had back then was just not something that, you know, kids can have today. I mean, I, you know, rode my bike, you know, several towns away and, you know, my school, you know, when I was going to, you know, second grade or third grade, my school was, um, you know, probably, I don't know, eight or nine miles away. And I rode my bike, you know, sort of all by myself, you know, and, and just, uh, would go, you know, all across town. And so spent a lot of time out on the bay, just, you know, sort of playing in the waves and stuff. So it was, a, it was a really, um, just sort of, you know, free and flexible, um, environment. My parents were pretty lax, moved a lot, um, moved probably a dozen times before I was 18. And so was always the new kid, um, yeah. never went to the same school, two years in a row until, um, high school. So I went to the same high school four years in a row. And so why'd you guys move so often? Um, yeah, my mom was, you know, she wasn't the most professional individual. And so she would separate from a guy and then she'd date another guy and then separate from him and then mm -hmm. date someone else. And so we moved in and out of that. And so a lot of different male figures in my life, you know, someone pretty nefarious around, um, drugs and, and other stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Um, so it was, you know, around and exposed to a lot of that growing up, but, um, you know, the two, two things that, you know, sort of, I just kind of thought that was normal. Um, and, you know, and, and two things that sort of, you know, I, I thought I, I think I had a great childhood, you know, no regrets on it. Um, you know, cause I always felt loved and I always never went hungry, you know? And so that was, you know, two things that, um, you know, sort of, and so, you know, I was a happy-go-lucky kid for, mm. for a long time. Um, in the moment, did you recognize that you guys were moving around all that often, or was it just kind of, it became the norm? 
Yeah, it was sort of the norm. Like it was just like this is what life is. Like if you've only seen this much of the world, that's right. all you know, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's all sort of I knew. And I didn't, you know, I was, I was thinking about this not too long ago, and I didn't really think or, or stand back and say, well, how come no one else is moving around like I am or anything? It was just right. like I moved around, and that was what I did. You, you didn't know, think of much of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Did, did it have? I mean, I, I suppose it does does have an impact on your social life as a kid. I mean, did you maintain any friendships at all, or? I did. I, I have one guy that I I was over for Thanksgiving that I met when I was four years old in a rock mm. fight, you know. And so still, um, he was. We were on opposite sides, and uh, my side was losing, so I went, I went over to his side. Now. <laughs> uh, no, but um, yeah, no. So been friends with him for you know over fifty years now, and and so that he was kind of the one constant that you know I would I'd move to either Alameda for a year, or, you know, back to Lafayette, or out to Concord, or then to Pleasant Hill, and back to Walnut Creek, and you know, Martinez. And so, you know, he was always coming over and we'd take BART or whatever to, you know, the mass transit system to get to. So, yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, there was no, nothing about, you know, again, my dad was a mailman, you know, he worked five days a week, worked hard. He had his, you know, 516 uh, addresses he delivered to. And that was his, you know, sort of, so there wasn't like, I didn't know what a profession was, you know, sort of growing up. So did you dream of being anything at that point i mean was there a dream job in your mind i thought i was gonna be a cook when i or a chef when i grew up because i just i love to you know tinker around with stuff and i don't think anyone was ever very good when i was growing yeah. up but it was fun to to play that so that was kind of the only thing that i ever sort of thought oh that might be interesting to do so hmm. like where did where did that interest come from it was just like naturally you just picked up cooking yeah, I mean, you know, given that, you know, we didn't make, we didn't have a lot of money, we didn't go out a lot. So my mom cooked a lot um and I would help her in the in the kitchen a lot and so I, you know, did cook a lot, you know, a fair amount. Um could make a lot of meals for myself, you know, back then. Um you know, I was in college, I did, you know, most of my cooking and that kind of stuff myself and whatnot. So um so yeah, so you know, spent a lot of but, you know, um helped cook on Thanksgiving and stuff like that. So I heard somewhere that you were the first person in your family to go to college. Is that right? Yeah. Um, except for my grandma who went when she was like 50. Okay. And so, but yeah. I'm, so you mentioned going to college. Um, was that always in the plans or did that become more of a reality when you were like, you know, later in high school or maybe even after? Yeah. So I, I went to, one, like I said, one thing that I give my mom a lot of credit for is actually getting me into good schools. And so, you know, when I was becoming a, in a high school, she wanted to go to a good school. So we went to Lafayette, you know, I was the poor kid, if you will, um, there. Um, and so Lafayette is Aquilani's high school is pretty good high school. And I think we had like 20 something people out of my senior class get accepted to Stanford. Mm. So it was a pretty good school. And I, it was the first time I'd started to think about college, but, um, I didn't have any money wasn't a great student at the time I was in, um, you know, I, I, uh, I stuttered some, but I had some dyslexia as well. Um, still have some. And so, um, just, you know, didn't think I was going to be the person who went to college or could go to college. And so, um, you know, but I also knew that I needed some time to get away and, and take a break from and not be idle. And so that's when I, um, joined the military. And so I was in the army for, from, you know, basically 18 to 21 and, um, you know, went for a number of reasons. Um, you know, partially my dad was drafted in Vietnam, although he didn't actually fight, he was stateside, but spent time in the military. Um, you know, I needed money for college and there was the army GI bill and the, the, mm-hmm. the college fund. Um, the, the ROTC. 
No, I was so ROTC is for officers, and yeah. because I didn't go to college, um, I wasn't ROTC. Right. I was a enlisted, is what they call it. But mm-hmm. yeah, so um, so I was a soldier, um, and it was a great experience. You know, I was in a a unit that was a um, so it was a it was a infantry unit, so foot fighting, um, helicopter, mobile um, type of stuff, but not armored or not you know on a boat or anything. And then um, uh, we were a unit that was pretty historic back in World War II, but was so we got so decimated they sort of canceled the unit, and then they were just bringing it back online um, two years before I joined the army, so which 1984, um, and so I joined in '86. And, and what was that unit? Um, it was called the 10th Mountain Division. And so, um, they were the teams that were, you know, scaling a lot of the cliffs in Italy and, mm-hmm. and, you know, deep in Germany and stuff like that. So during a lot of World War II and just got, I mean, they were heroic, but they just got decimated. Yeah. So, um, and they were, they were a mountain unit, right? Like yeah. a, um, um, and so I, I joined that and, uh, or I, when I joined, you can't join that, but when I joined, um, that was part of the, that was where I got, I got placed and so they had run the unit so hard, um, getting it up to speed because they 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 were restarting it right yeah. like two years before. So, so there were so many you know a walls and people who got you know sort of um, uh, injury and in you know kicked out or people who just you know refused to to do you know to go out in the field anymore. And so I was one of the first replacements that came in. And so there were all these schools that they were available. So. I got to go to, you know, airborne school. I got to go to ranger school. I got to go to sniper school. I tested, you know, anti-armor weapons for the military because the ones we had weren't quite, you know, effective enough against the Soviet armor yeah. that was out there. And so, so it was a fantastic experience. I got to spend a lot of taxpayer money and um, <laughs> learned a lot about myself, um, you know. and You uh, know, it's always crazy to me, you know, that you're just 18, right, yeah. at that point. I mean, and not only you, a lot of a lot of the men and women that join – you know, they're barely adults and here you are, you're just thrown into just all of this. You can't even legally drink. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Yeah, yeah. operative <laughs> word being legally. Uh, what, what was your mindset like? I mean, you're, you know, you're thinking back and said, you know, you're soaking it all in. Was it, was it that positive at that time? Were you just like excited or, I mean, what were you going through? Yeah, I mean, I knew it was something I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. And I knew it was something that... um um you know, uh, that I would struggle with the, um, so a little bit rolling back, um, to, to, to high school, actually one day to high school or not one day, but every day when I'd ride my bike to high school, there was a truck with a bumper sticker on the back that said question authority. And so given like, you know, my parents were super strict and so, you know, um, uh, used to thump me quite a bit, but, but, um, so with that though, it really sort of caught, oh, wow, you can, that was like the thing that sort of just always stuck with me. And so when I was in the military, like being part of a unit that had, that was pushing this hard, it gave you a lot of flexibility. So you you could be a little bit like your, your clothes didn't have to be as, your uniform didn't have to be ironed as well. Or your boots, you know, shined as well. So oh, you could. I, I would think it'd be the opposite. Yeah. Like I would think like in the military, it's going to be harder to question authority. Yeah. Is that not the case? It, 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 so it, it, yes, which is, so there was that um, overarching tone, just not in, in our unit and some mm-hmm. other, you know, special operations units and, or in the special operations unit. Cause I became a ranger instructor for my last year in the military. And so I was teaching actually, or I was in ranger school helping, you know, sort of um, in the mountain phase. Um, and, and that was, that was kind of the thing that I said, you know, 
I need more flexibility than what the military allows. Yeah. And I didn't want to, I wanted to be able to question authority and try new things. And so, so that was sort of, yeah. But when I got it, yes. It, so back to your question, it wasn't amazingly positive, just fun. You know, I was out in the field all the time. I was, you know, again, like I, I was shooting these, you know, test rockets for, um, uh, you know, new sort of light, kind of the mid-range anti-armor weapons because the Soviets were putting a new type of armor on their their vehicles. And so our current handheld ones weren't effective. Yeah. And so we needed new ones. We were testing them and, you know, you squeeze around and it's, you know, yep. $250,000 every time yep, you squeeze yep. around. Um, tell us what, I want to I kind of talk about the transformative experience for you because you mentioned it was, it was a transformative experience. What was Chuck pre-military the guy the kid who's moving around constantly having to make new friends perhaps feels like an outsider doesn't quite maybe know like where do i fit in like you know you go to this school and you mentioned you know there the kids are very different than you are what what happened where that chuck became the chuck after the military like what was that experience that really changed you yeah, I mean, I, the military did change me a lot. And, I, and I'm not sure the military changed me or those three years changed me, the time that I had to really think. And, you know, and, and it was like one of my first times out of California, right? So I grew up in California and, you know, the Bay Area, which is, you know, not a troubled part of the world, certainly. Um, but it was an, a time when I got to go see, I mean, we did, I, one of the things that was most interesting to me is is we when we were in every two, six for two weeks, every six months, we did, we supported the uh, the the post, if you will, the the military base we were on, and we'd have to go do um, um, uh, burial detail, right? So people who were in like World War II came back and who passed away or Vietnam had passed away, we would do the burial service for them. The you know the carry the coffin, fold the flag, do the twenty one gun salute, you know um, that whole process, and um, to go back to some of these areas where it was like, I mean, sometimes I was the you know one of like six white guys in in a in a area. Um, and five of them were my, you know, sort of yeah. um, army buddies, you know, sort of thing. And so, and those were just really transformative things that said, hey, there's more to the world than what I had sort of realized. And so that's where I really started to think about, you know, I need to start growing up and I need to start seeing what else is out there. Um, because I'm just sort of happy go lucky at this point, not really taking things that seriously. So I think some of those trips where we went into these communities and I mean, they had these big celebrations when someone passed and obviously to celebrate their life, not the passing, but, um, and so it was, it was that, I think some of those experiences were what, you know, sort of got me the, um, the most to think about. And then, um, got back, went to a uh, junior college, um, you know, did, did a, a year and a half there, um, played football, football got me into Cal Poly, um, I didn't even know about Cal Poly when I, you know, was sort of thinking about it. And, and which Cal Poly is this? Um, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. Um, and then, so spent three and a half years there was the oldest guy. So, you know, when I, you know, in my grade, so when I got there, I was able to buy everyone beer, which is, you know, <laughs> uh, so I got to know a lot of people cause a yeah. lot of people wanted me to buy them beer. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, in that sort of, you know, I was living on my own, I was paying my own bills. I mean, I did have the army college fun but you know it worked um so anyway did you um i know you mentioned you have a friend you know dating all the way back till you you were four years old but it just sounds to me like the the experiences that you had when you were younger and then also going to college and being like the older guy on campus uh 
you you ha- almost have to be independent and, and and it feels and it might feel difficult to like again fit in in a lot of circles um was that ever like an issue with you in terms of feeling like like lonely a little bit or and if you did like did you what did you turn to in terms of was it like people was it other things like i don't know reading learning like were there were there outlets that you had along the way that helped you kind of come into your own as you got older? Yeah. I mean, I, if, so where I like to do, so I do a lot of audiobooks, and I just kind of listen to a lot of, you know, people thinking about, um, how they see the world ideas they have. I got it. That got me into philosophy. Mm. Um, and between those two, I do a lot of that while running. And so running is sort of my meditation. So I, I run at least four days a week. Um, you know, uh, don't run as long as I used to these days, but, um, still try and get out. And that's where I try and do most of my thinking and just processing and, you know, what's next. And, you know, if I'm ever down, you know, a nice run will help me sort of like get through that. Um, so running for me has been one of my biggest outlets. Um, certainly, um, I, you know, I've never been great at mentors. Um, there's always been a number of people that I've known that I've respected and whatnot, but going to ask for advice from people's has always been, cause I, I have always been, you know, a survival mindset type of person. Like, okay, I've got to own this problem. And as I, as I became a manager in, in life and in, in leading people that got to be hard because I, you know, I sort of expected people to like, um, match your passion and enthusiasm and work ethic. Yeah. And, <laughs> and be self-correcting, right. right. Rather than need to be managed, be able to right. be able to understand you know, and, and so it's, it's taken me a long time to right. understand like EQ. But right? that requires for those people to have a self-awareness or to want to have a self-awareness to be, before they even could self-correct. Exactly. And that's where, it, again, it's taken me a long time to realize right. there's some people who just don't have that makeup, right? right. They totally. just don't, they see the world a certain way. And, you know, so that yeah. so that's been a big lesson for me. Yeah, I still struggle with that, like on a day-to-day yeah. basis, but... Uh, real quick, I just want to take it back to the military days. And again, thank you for your service. I don't, we didn't, we didn't mention that. Uh, you talk about food early on, and I know your story revolves around food as well. What was the food like in the military? And what was, I mean, were, were you the, you know, team chef, team cook? Like what, what, what was that like? I never, I've never asked anybody that question. Actually. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, lots of different example, lots of different things. So when I would go into the chow hall most mornings, I would just mi- it got to the point where you would mix everything. You yeah. would make like a big, basically biscuits and gravy type of mix thing. Cause biscuits and gravy were there every meal, oftentimes eggs, bacon, you know, that kind of stuff. And you would just like take it and mix it all into yeah. one. My last year in the military though, I was pretty fortunate cause I was in um, the mountain phase of ranger school where I was an instructor there. And it's, it's sort of, known throughout the military for their blueberry pancakes um Mm. and so like when you're in ranger school you're basically you only get a couple hot meals a week type of thing most of it's the mres and whatnot but what you do is most meals in ranger school you're you're sort of they're putting the food on your tray you're eating it as you're walking down the sort of um you know the 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 bar there and then you sort of walk to the door you set your you're eating as you're walking to the door you set your tray down and you go right sort of mm-hmm. thing and so but in the mountain phase with these blueberry pancakes they let and so anyway so the f- mountain phase blueberry pancakes were phenomenal and so that's where i got to yeah, yeah enjoy that but overall it wasn't good 
Uh, no, it wasn't yeah. good. It's not. It's not a highlight for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some bases though. Like if you if you look at back at some of the stories of, you know, the recent um, conflicts, there are some people who have done, you know, some some chefs who have been yeah, super creative about how they've, um, you know, created these fantastic dining halls for right. our soldiers that are out in the out, oh, yeah. out in the. You just imagine like nutrition for soldiers would be something that's important. I, yep. I mean, as yep. it is for everybody, but I mean, oh, and hopefully it's improved from the time that you were there. But I can't imagine it's improved that much yeah i mean it's a real problem with the military right now because and it's it's a lot of people coming into the military we've had so much soda and sugar in our diets as kids that the bone density of of soldiers coming in now a lot more people are getting rejected coming into the military because of their of pre-existing issues that didn't you know weren't around 20 30 you'd hope the government would do something about it but i mean we could go down a whole rabbit hole there of you know food in the u.s yeah i feel like there are government subsidized food programs but like probably shit yeah it's probably not even great (laughs) well a lot of people talk about if you look at the food triangle with all that stuff like that um the government sort of subsidizes the opposite of the food triangle right sort of it's like a reverse triangle yeah interesting so you you end up going to college i'm not sure if you mentioned it but what did you end up studying uh, so I studied economics, um, and the reason I did that is because at the time George W. Bush was an econ major, or the first George Bush, H. Mm-hmm. W. Bush, yeah, H. Yeah, w. was an econ major, and I had read a stat that more CEOs were econ majors than any other major. I don't know if it's true, but I read it. So, so you had that. That was what your mindset was. That yeah. like I want to be a CEO founder yeah. eventually. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was wanted to go. You didn't want to like go down a sort of traditional career path no i mean i um so i was i was starting to get a sense for um because that was um sort of you know 93 94 as the tech boom in the bay area was starting to to build so there were some companies now starting to come down to san luis obispo and do some recruiting on campus and i'd sort of gotten a flavor and i i knew a couple older classmen um because when I went down there, I played rugby as a as my first year, and I was playing with you know sort of people who are graduating who were going into the tech sector up in the Bay Area. And so to me, I was just starting to get an inkling of what was possible. Um, and so yeah, I wanted to be a founder. You know, here here moving back to the Bay Area, one of the you know sort of internet or not internet, but um, entrepreneurial places you know yeah. on the planet. Um, so who, who were some of the people at the time that were building businesses that you looked up to or like you maybe wanted to emulate? Yeah, I mean it's it's a good question. I'm not sure I could name any names. Um, I mean, certainly later as I got into um, you know living in the Bay Area and seeing some of the companies that were sort of starting, because um, my first job out of so my first job because I you know the internet was just starting to pick up there was I was an insurance salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, not a great job. Your friends tend yeah. to like don't want to hang out with you right. for much longer. They think every you, time you contact them, it's because you're you trying want to sell, sell them insurance, insurance. <laughs> right? Um, what was the, what was the success rate? Yeah, um, I don't know. Is there a negative success rate <laughs> yeah, possible? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you pay them, correct, for their insurance? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 Listen, exactly. I'll just cover you. Just sign up with me. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean. Um, Trying to sell a 23-year-old who has no money, life insurance, like, who has no family. Anyway, so, anyway. So, um, but I was getting used, but I was seeing all these opportunities. You know, I was in San Francisco. um, I had, you know, I mean, companies were, you know, you'd change a business plan for a venture check, you know, type of thing back then. Um, And and so I was seeing all this around me. And so um, 
just got to know like there was a guy um who started a, a um one of the original dsl companies right and so it was from you know when aol was the the thing to you know dial up at you know 14.4 and then 28.8 and you know all the way up through and then once like pervasive you know dsl came along um and then like the well i can't what's the original like invitation site um is it evite or not evite yeah evite yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sorry so i knew the two founders of evite and actually they actually wrote a little piece of code for open table that was one of the longest pieces of code that we had um original pieces of code that we had and so i got to meet a lot of those people who were yeah. sort of doing that just because there were you know networking parties and there were like you know launch parties and stuff like that that i would go to and um you know i was trying to figure out okay how can I get a job at one of these companies to get internet experience? And I applied to like probably 15 internet companies um, and none of them, um, I didn't have enough internet experience in 95, 96, 97. I know, right? So, I mean, it was good that none of them offered me a job. Right, in in hindsight. But like at the time, you know, it's like always such a fascinating time period for me because it's like so many companies started but also died obviously during the crash. But the ones that were able to like really make it through did so well because it was like this new frontier that, you know, there it was like a land grab of like mm-hmm. who can be there this, the earliest and grab as much market share as possible. Cause there's a whole new world that's being created. Yeah. So like obviously Jeff Bezos and Amazon did that with starting with books and then so on and so forth. But for you, like when you in that time, when you're looking at this thing, like, was it pretty clear that there's going to be like, infinite amounts of opportunity in this internet thing i i thought so i i thought the internet was going to change fundamentally change a lot um you know for me just being able to like pull up you know a document from mit's library or um you know be able to uh you know book a flight on southwest airlines at the time or go rent an apartment you know through um apartments.com you know type of thing like those things to me just kind of i fundamentally believe that that was just going to change commerce um tremendously people were building servers under their desks and you know it was just sort of there was no infrastructure for it you know like there is today and today it's you know it's equally complicated if not more but but at the same time like um the tools back then just didn't really exist like you had to do you had to figure out how to hack together all that stuff yourself um but yeah i mean i i was i was a huge believer in the opportunity and knew I wanted to be part of it. I just didn't know how I'd be part of it. So, so you applied all these jobs and don't get them. What's like, what what comes after that? What do you do? Yeah. And so I, so I, in high school, I, I, um, waited tables and so had sort of a strong familiarity with restaurants and in the military, even for like a month, I waited tables randomly in this weird reason. But, um, and then, um, through college, I waited tables and sort of paid my, you know, so when I got done with college, I had no debt. Hope that Cal Poly was a very cheap school, but at the same time, I had no debt. Um, and so um, so I knew how the front of a, a restaurant worked. My, um, my fiance at the time, um, my wife now, um, her parents were in the restaurant business. And so, um, and um, one weekend, uh, it was, you know, it was a Saturday morning. She was trying to make reservations for, they were coming out the following weekend. And um, she was trying to make reservations for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Started, 
I don't know, nine or 10 in the morning, arguably on a Saturday morning. It's not the best time to try and call restaurants in the past. Yep. And it took her like three and a half hours to get these three reservations because one, you know, her parents are foodies and they run lettuce entertaining. You said you were in Chicago last week. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's a pretty big restaurant group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've even got a couple restaurants in LA now. Um, I don't know. They do close to a billion in revenue and yeah. that's through like independent, you know, type of restaurants. So it's not yeah. a big chain. Um, and then, um, um, uh, so, you know, she'd call one restaurant and get their voicemail and call another and, you know, they were open. So she'd get a reservation, call another, they're not open on Sunday. So then she'd call them on Saturday and move it back on Sunday, you know? And so it was just a big mess for her. And so I said, you know, there's gotta be a better way. And so, um, quit my job and just went out and cause I had, so I'd worked in the front of the house, but I never really realized there wasn't like a, a an electronic system at the host stand. It was all paper-based systems mm. at the host stand. And so what I was thinking when I quit my job, and this is the level of market research I did, is I thought I was just really going to take like the internet and stick it into the back of, of these yeah. digital terminals and just, you know, now put the reservations up online. Um, and then, you know, quickly within like a couple weeks, I realized that there is no terminal at host stands. It's all pen and paper or it's all paper and pencil, um, you know, yeah. up there. And, um, and that there's all kinds of complexities. There's different ways there's different formats that people take reservations in. Some take them like in the office during the day and, you know, at the host stand at night and some have, you know, dinner time and some have lunch. And so all these complexities that started to what about, emerge. What about market research on the other side of the marketplace? Like consumers, did you talk to other people that, you know, you knew had that issue or did you feel like, you know, this is a pretty common thing that everyone is probably dealing with. They just don't know. That yeah, I mean, be a better it, way. You know, I just was a little bit of our conversation beforehand. Is I my, just my mindset was, oh, the, if you know, my if my wife has this problem, everyone's going to have this problem, right? You know, sort of thing, right? So I just didn't think about it. Yeah. Um, but I also saw, like, again, you know, Southwest Airlines. You could you could make a reservation on Southwest Airlines. You could do, you know, there was Apartments.com, there was Rent.com, there was. Um, Food.com. So there was a number of places out there where you just thought were, restaurants hadn't caught up yet to that. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I had, and when I had worked in restaurants, I realized they were all sort of low margin businesses, right? They're very cyclical, whether it's throughout the day, lunch and dinner, you have your peaks throughout the week, you have your peaks seasonally, you have your peaks. Most of them, you know, or a lot of them are run by um, people who have a passion they can light a candle and cook a meal, but maybe not as good on the books and stuff like that. You know, it's, they're, getting a lot more they're obviously a lot more sophisticated now than they've ever been but you know for a lot of them it's artisanal right it's not about um um yes they want to make money doing it but that's like they also have a craft they want to share with the world mm. right and so um so for many of them um like they didn't they didn't know what the internet was they didn't know you know many of them didn't even have point of sale systems where you could put in the order and it would you know go back to the kitchen and whatnot they were purely paper driven besides the phone, you know, um, some of them are still like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you see this problem that exists and you, you know, do a little bit of research. You realize it's not going to be an easy thing to start. Uh, what is, what is the immediate next step? Like does, you know, clearly it didn't, you know, discourage you from doing it, but what kind of got you over the maybe hump of like, well, even though this is hard, it's still worth pursuing because, there's a big enough opportunity. Yeah. You know, there was a little bit of a crit. So there's some, a lot of serendipity and, and which I just think is a, you know, stream through a lot of entrepreneur stories, but certainly through mine, um, that there was some people that I met who were felt like they were missing 
the um, internet investing craze because they were at a, a, a restaurant investment bank. Hmm. Restaurant industry wasn't seeing a lot of internet you know, technologies come through there. And this was an, a restaurant internet technology right, that people liked. And so I had this group it was part of Montgomery Securities, which is long gone. It's been bought up, which is bought up, you know, which is bought up type of thing. But there was a group of investors there that um, one of my um, uh, developers, uh, his wife worked there. And um, they said, hey, you know, we want to invest in this Internet thing that's about restaurants. Because, we don't, you know, they had taken like Red Lobster Public and things like that. But they hadn't been able to do it. Yeah. And so I got... Um, you know, we decided to raise a round because of that. Cause I had, I had borrowed 50 grand from my, my father-in-law. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of, uh, the, the only money I'd borrowed for it. And, and then, um, we got these, um, investment bankers that were, you know, from the restaurant world that wanted to, you know, get involved with the internet. And, um, you know, it was a very, um, you know, aggressive time. And so we, I went, I started off, I wanted to raise, um, 500 K, which was the seed round back then. Crazy. Not now it's a, like the pre 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 seed exactly exactly <laughs> yes yeah, so now you, yeah. can't, you can't even put seed on that anymore. Right. it's like so far below a seed so anyway the um, soil round it's the soil. yes exactly it's <laughs> definitely gonna go to shit but in case it doesn't we'll give you a pre seed <laughs> so true so true um so I was, I was trying to raise um 500k i ended up um and and my my belief was is that um i wanted to get in as many investors as possible because it, I felt like if I needed a VP of marketing, I would have all these people who had a vested interest in helping me. And so we had we had um, uh, forty seven investors. Wow, sounds like a first time founder mistake. Yes, we raised. Um, we got. We were. I was trying to raise five hundred k. I got um, one point two million committed. Squeezed everyone per rata down to seven hundred fifty k. Closed that round three weeks later. Um, and then op- immediately opened up another round. And then three weeks later, I closed 2 million in that second round. So I raised like 2.75 million in like three weeks. And Chuck, um, the idea was simply an online reservation system for restaurants. Yes. So the, the, the idea that it's become. Yes. Yeah. So the, so, so little, little pre- preamble. Yeah. So, um, when I originally started the company, it was called easy eats mm-hmm. and it was going to be easy docs, easy cuts easy putts, right? So I was thinking about, I was going to do all these reservation. Got it. You know, I was going to build a platform and do each vertical. Yeah. And so one of the things we would do is I would get like $100 in $5 bills and I would go out to like Union Square and I would pay people five bucks to answer a survey or answer questions. And so I went in and asked a bunch of people, hey, what do you think about th- these names? And they're like, well, easy, you know, um, is fine because I like that, but I don't want a hair associated with my food, right? Like just things like that. Then. So, okay, great. So we'll scrap that idea. Um, and then we sort of realized that restaurants by themselves was going to be a pretty big and complicated market. So let's focus on one thing. Yeah. Um, and then we moved away from easy eats because a lot of these high-end restaurants weren't excited by the name eats in it. And so um, open tape. Uh, what's that? Or easy. Maybe. Or easy. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I was, it was, yeah. Um, and so open table, um, again, through a bunch of $5 bills and Union Square um, was sort of how we, we got to that name. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so then we, we named it. But, yes, that was the, the concept. 
But what we knew we had to do is we had to take that paper-based system that they were used to using and replace it with an electronic system. Mm -hmm. Right. And on that note, obviously I see the, it's obviously clear the value proposition, like, you know, struggling to get a reservation for the, for the customer. You know, so many times you, you see people in an industry that have been doing the, you know, the famous saying of like, well, we've always been doing it this way. Like Mm -hmm. why change it? Right. Uh, how do you convince, how did you convince these restaurants in terms of like, what value were you proposing to them that made them realize, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe the way we're doing it is not perfect. And we could certainly, you know, use something like this. Yeah. So, um, there's like four answers to that question yeah. and, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll try and weave them all together, but it's, I think it's exactly right. And this is what a lot of entrepreneurs don't, um, that's what a lot of entrepreneurs don't absorb, I think. And so the first thing that, um, and this is in no particular order, these are sort of all together. But the first thing was, is that it's, you have your, let's use, we'll t- call it the, um, um, so you got your innovators, your early adopters, your, your early majority, late majority and laggers, yeah. right? Your sort of innovation curve, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's going to be people who don't want what you've got yet or aren't going to get it until, um, you know, the the majority of people have it, Right. And so what you have to do, first of all, is keep your customer or your, your prospect target list as broad as possible or have as many options, you know, shots on goal as possible um, because you want to find the people who have the pain point who want to work with you on it, right? If there's no one who's got a pain point, then you don't got a product, right? But if you're finding people who are okay working with an, un, an, um, an unfinished, imperfect product, then you're going to have people who will work with you through the bugs and through the sort of, you know, configuring it the way they need it and that kind of stuff. So, so two, so two was that a lot of these restaurants started to be concerned about, um, you know, the competition was starting to, was certainly building up in both San Francisco and New York on the restaurant scene. And, you know, Zagat was really big and who's the most best restaurant. And so, but this, their databases were these hostess and hostess or hosts and hostess who, may fall in love and move to Barcelona or may quit their jobs and go down the street. And they were their databases. They were the people who recognized Mark and Sandy who were coming in or, you know, Josephine and whoever, like, you know, so they were the ones who would recognize these people and were treating. And so if those people left their database, walked out the door, they didn't have this information Hmm. or it was sitting up in paper books on a bookshelf somewhere from their old, you know, sort of reservation sheets. And so, um, so there was a lot of restaurateurs who realized that they were pretty vulnerable from from that standpoint. Um, so that that was that was sort of the second you know sort of dynamic that was starting to happen. And then um, and and then even with the customers that they had coming in, they wanted to make sure they knew who their best customers were and what their best customers' interests were. Like, did they like a corner table? Did they like you know, Mark and Mark is the waiter or Sandy is the waiter. Did they like, you know, were they meat eaters? Do they love wine? You know, that type of stuff. And so it was the, it was the restaurateurs who were really thinking about taking better care of their current customers. And so that was the group. And so the, like Zagat was a, was an interesting um, um, publication then because we could look at who were the most popular restaurants in a, in a um, area and they didn't need internet reservations. Right. So I, I one of my, a lot of theories in life is that if you have a two-sided network, if you can seed one side of the network so that you provide value to one side before the other side actually needs to participate, you can build one side up and then hopefully encourage mm-hmm. the other side to come. And so with restaurants, the idea was is that we could 
find those people who didn't care about internet reservations. That wasn't their thing. They wanted to take better care of their current customers. And so we built what we called the ERB, the Electronic Reservation Book, that sat on their host stand. It replaced the paper-based system that they were used to using. And now they could take deep, detailed notes on who their customers were, what their preference were, how often they came in, how valuable they were, all that kind of stuff that they had never had access to before. Um, and then we we connected like concierge to it. And so now concierge could track who they were sending, which people to, which you know restaurants to. And so there were a number of these things that now restaurateurs could have this accountability or this, this sort of rich data set. Um, and then once you get the first, you know, 10 or 20 restaurants in a market, the next sort of 75 restaurants or so all aspire to be what those 10 or 20 are doing, right? So whatever those 10 or 20 are right. starting to do, the next 75 want to do. So the next 75 still would buy the system without needing to prove more seats, you know, more butts and seats. But now once you get, you know, um, sort of a critical mass in an area, now you start to see the online reservations piece kick in, which is now the other side of the network. And so now you're creating revenue for these restaurants. And so now the other three or four or 500 restaurants in a market who had empty seats, who, you know, weren't filling their restaurants all the time, we had a revenue generation opportunity for them. So now they were coming on board to get yeah. um, the actual, you know, more seats in more butts and seats. And early on, like V1 first iteration, what was the revenue opportunity for OpenTable? Yep. So um, we would charge um, a, a, a per license fee. And it was really because we had this, it was like a brick. It was actually a piece of technology that was for insides of subs. It was like a touchscreen, self-enclosed computer with like a little keyboard that came out of it that we actually had to go find. It was like actually a manufacturer not too far from here. It was terrible. It broke down all the time, but um, it, it helped us in these early. And so it was this, um, yeah, so we charge per unit that we had. So we charge $199 a month for the first unit and then um, $99 for the second unit. We then charged a um, dollar per cover that came through the internet. Um, and then we charged a $1,500 upfront installation fee. And so it was, and it was, that was, there was a, I think we don't, we don't talk about it a lot, but in hindsight, I think that was another innovative thing that we did relative to many, because most things were sales back then. So the point of sale business was selling their point of sale systems to the restaurant industry. And they'd sell them for like $22,000 for a, POS system throughout the restaurant. Right. And then they would charge them like 15% a year, which would be, you know, whatever, you know, what is that? $3,400 a year they would charge these people or $3,300 a year they would charge these people. Um, sometimes 18%, sometimes 20% um, for support and, and whatnot. But what we did is $1,500 up front to configure it. Um, and then if we had to bring in DSL, which most times we did, because it was very early then and it was really hard to get it. And it was, in, you know, incomplete. There were there were places in like Atlanta that when you know with with um, Bell South or whatever that the I mean it was faster to use um, dial up phone than it was DSL at some points but um, anyway so um, yeah so we would charge those three fees basically a, a setup and configuration fee a monthly fee depending on how many units they had um, and if they got internet through us or not and then a per cover fee that came through the internet and, and remind me what year was OpenTable launched. So we, so it was founded in 1998. Okay. So you're like in your probably what, late twenties at that point or? Yeah, I was, I was 20, I was like 29. Okay. And I mean, 
from what I recall, there wasn't really any social media. So how were you, or I mean, I guess there was MySpace. No, not even. No, MySpace wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. How are you acquiring or how are people hearing about OpenTable? Yeah. So creating the technology is obviously one thing. I mean, people actually using it on on the consumer side. It's maybe it's a lot easier now because you could just be like, "Here's my app. Go download it." But that that wasn't the case back then. Yeah. So if you remember back then, um, um, there was a number of like these national websites like AOL's Digital mm-hmm. Cities, Microsoft Sidewalk, um, Zagat tried to launch one. Yep. Um, and then in each market, you'd have like the Chronicle or the LA Times or something who would have their sort of restaurant review sites and that kind of stuff. And they were all these information sites. You couldn't do anything on them really, right? Yeah. Might have the phone number, has an address. Maybe sometimes they'd have some crappy copy of the menu or like the highlights or whatever. But you wouldn't like engage with anything. The, yeah, there's yeah. nothing to touch, yeah. right? There's no nothing mm-hmm. to click. Even the, you know, maybe you can click on the ad banners and that was about it, right? And so we were content for those sites. And so one of the things that we were, um, that, you know, we, we got a lot of attention. And actually one of the reasons we got one of our biggest investors was because he had said he'd never seen such a good deal from someone who signed an agreement with AOL. So we went out to sign on it because AOL was everything. Mm-hmm. And they had their digital cities platform. They probably got like nine people a month who went to the digital cities platform. <laughs> uh, it was not the core, you know, mover in their business for sure. Um, but um, so what we would do is every, so, so open table was the only place you could search all of the restaurants in an area. Um, Italian food, Friday night, four people, seven o'clock, go. And it would bring back, like, it would search all the restaurants and bring back, like, nine or ten or And those restaurants had to be signed up with you guys. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, with Open Table. Um, there's, there's a piece that we had other restaurants availability, right. but but yeah, wasn't a big part. Um, and, um, and, and so, but what we did is we would allow um, AOL or Microsoft Sidewalk to have just the link to just that restaurant on that, on their, on their information site. So they couldn't aggregate the results. Got it. But like, if you went to each of the, you know, restaurants on AOL's digital city, it would have a reserve now button. And so our goal was anywhere that restaurant was listed on the internet, get a reserve now button next to it because that was content for them. They had a way now that their users could engage with this and we called it a revenue stream. We said we split the revenue 50-50. I think the largest check we ever sent to AOL was like 500 bucks or something. So <laughs> it wasn't a big transaction for them, but it gave us credibility because now we were talking to the restaurants, oh, you're on you know, AOL, oh, you're on you know, Microsoft, oh, you're on you know, all these places now where there was going to be increased traffic. Right. The good thing was is the first time someone signed up through AOL, to then book a reservation on Open Table because it's branded Open Table. We now got that user. So now we could remarket back to that user to come straight to Open Table and be able to look at the whole consideration set of, mm-hmm. of options for you to be able to pick your restaurant at. As you start up signing more, uh, more restaurants and the company's starting to grow and really feel like a real business, what were some challenges uh that you faced, whether it was with the business or maybe you like first time being like a leader of, you know, a bunch of people. How was that for you? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I didn't know anything about leadership. Um, you know, the, 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 there was a little bit I'd learned in the, in the military. Um, but even in the military, I was mostly a, a, a doer, um, than, than, you know, sort of a leader, um, if you will, it's not a very, um, nice way to say that, but, um, like a delegator maybe. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. And so, um, and so I, the, the only thing that I think 
I think I did two things well and probably a hundred things not so well as, as a leader. One was we had a vision, right? And our vision was if a restaurateur could sign an agreement, I don't know why we said this, while falling over, we'd get the system in. Like we just made it easy for them to sign up because we saw every time there was a barrier or some sort of friction in the process, it just slowed it down. Right. It went from like one touch to six touches to like 30 touches. It got like exponential in slowing it down every time there was a, there was a kink mm. and the kink could be in, you know, so, so we, we, so yeah, so I, I'll, I tell you a ton of stories about that. So that, that was the first thing. And then two is that no one was going to work harder than I was, I was going to set the bar for how hard we were going to work. You didn't have to work as hard as I was, but I wasn't going to be, but, but no one was going to outwork me in it. And so like I was taking, you know, red eyes all over the country, like to New York and, you know, and, you know, so, you know, barely slept in hotels. Like we, we were super cheap. We like got space on top of you know um like in the mission on top of like the the goodwill down there and like we're up you know there's like the first floor was goodwill the second floor um and second and third floor were like you'd the elevator door would open and it would be like yard you know like sewing machines you know and like piles of textiles and like you know 100 you know women in there sewing away on stuff and then we were on the top floor um you know of the space and like we used, you know, old doors for our, our desks and, you know, got filing cabinets, you know, there's two level yep. filing cabinets for free and, you know, found chairs in the dumps. I mean, like we were super cheap um, in that. And so, and so I was the first person there every day and the last person to leave every day. And that, and, and I was not like, I wasn't, I didn't have the skills to do what I was doing, but I was going to learn them. I was going to and, and it was going to experience it and learn it for, you know, myself was kind of how I, how I thought about it. Um, and so those, those two things, and I was willing to make mistakes. Like, you know, I want to learn on the go. Were, were, were you making money? Were you paying yourself? Um, I was paying myself like $90,000 a year. So I was paying myself yeah. something. Um, but, but, um, yeah. And do so, you recommend that entrepreneurs do that? I think, yeah. So yes, I, so, so I have a number of thoughts on this. Um, so I, I do think that like, I mean, we lived in a really small apartment, you know, I didn't go out and buy $19 frefe latte coffees every day yep. at, yeah. at Starbucks. Yep. Um, I didn't, um, so, so I, the, the long, the less you need and the longer you can extend your runway, just the better chance you have of succeeding and uh, frugality. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, I have a good friend, um, who's a, serial entrepreneurs launch a number of companies and he has this yogi bear quote in order to be in business you have to be in business right so the longer you can survive the longer you can thrive the better chance you're going to have that sort of another person black swan outcome right like you're going to hit it right i think um and so and other people may have different philosophies but that's certainly mine and And you have to be able to sustain being in business correct exactly and so and and be scrappy and so the less you need um but I do think that entrepreneurs should pay themselves something. I, f- I think they should try and figure out how low they can go. Um, but they shouldn't be, need to, you know, sort of be out flipping burgers to like right. pay the rent, right? Having so many investors on the cap table, and it's, it's a long, ta- it's a big table. Uh, did it ever feel like, was it a struggle ever in terms of you wanting to lead the company the way you want to lead it? versus people maybe breathing over your shoulder or 
any conflicts there? Yeah. I mean, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that to other people. I mean, 47 is too many. I might, you know, I, I think 46 have, too many. Yeah. For, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to lie that, or deny that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, um, having people around you that can help you be successful is important. Um, there were a lot of people who they, they were less armchair quarterbacks, but they were more wanting to know it all. And so wanting to like, what's happening, yeah. how am I doing and that kind of stuff, especially people who, um, you know, I had people who would put in 10 grand who I heard more from than the, the largest investor who would like put in 250 K or something like that. And I heard from him like weekly, right? Well, what, I went to this one restaurant yeah. and this happened because and, it was probably like a matter more to them than exactly. Yeah. The, the money that they had put in was probably a bigger piece of their net worth. Exactly. <laughs> and, and between that, um, where I'm, I'm constantly like responding to these people because they're your investors to actually the actual cost of papering all these people and keeping track of signatures and all that stuff like that. It, it, it was not the right thing in hindsight to do and I wouldn't do it again. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what ultimately happens? How, how long do you stay at open table? So a number of things happen. So, and you asked some of the challenges of, of some of the leadership stuff, you know, one of the things is, is certainly the dot-com crash, right? Um, we had raised a, a round of capital, um, sort of, um, right as that, right before that happened. Right. And it was a, it was nice to have some capital. It allowed many of our, um, so there's some, there's some huge serendipity in this. So I, I think we were building a good business. There was lots of pressure on how do you grow faster? You know, all these other, you know, businesses that we, we had shoe leather cost, right? We had to walk into a small restaurant. We had to get them to, to buy the system. We had to then transfer all of their reservation yeah. data, which has like two months in the future into the system. Then we had to get DSL into that place. And then we had to like, you know, sort of turn them online, right? So there was a lot of work to do for these small businesses. DSL could take 12 or 14 weeks sometimes. And if it was a union building, may even take longer than that, right? Um, we went through dozens, eh, not dozens, we went through eight or nine different types of, of connectivity, whether it was dial-up at first. And then we had this like CDP, CD something, um, which was like the police scanner yeah. technology. Yeah. But there's just like a lot of work and cost up front that you just like hope, you know, these restaurants stay around long enough to. Correct. Which is high failure rate for high, restaurants exactly. and, and yeah. whatnot. Um, and so there were, there were a lot of challenges or sort of, you know, things that we just had an incredible team that, you know, would push through stuff. We had people who would, you know, I'd come into, I'd fly into, um, um, New York, you know, you know, I'd work through the night and there'd be people there at, you know, 1am just getting back from installing restaurants and that kind of stuff. So, you know, so things were going okay. Um, we were learning a lot. We were pushed too hard to expand to too many places. We were in 14, 14 cities, um, losing a lot of money, um, losing about a million dollars a month at that point. And I had one of my, um, directors, you know, pull me aside after a board meeting and said, Hey, you thought about you know, bringing in a, another CEO, maybe it's time. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's time, you know, sort of thing. Because I, I mean, I was over my head. And, you know, and it was a time where the the sentiment about internet companies was changing. It was coming up to 2001. Um, and um, um, so people, I, I have a lot of gray hair now. I didn't have as much gray hair back then. They said, how about if we find someone with some gray hair who might be able to do some more here and whatnot. And so we brought in, we did, we, I stepped down to be the um, head of product, 
And then we brought in someone to be a CEO who came out of the point of sale business. Um, and we together went out and raised the next round of capital. We raised, and, and what happened is, is we got, we got one of the best investors on the planet um, to come in. And he had, was out of the Bay Area. Um, he had seen us. So I had been stalking him all over the place. Every time he was speaking at like Cal or Stanford or some other, you know, internet thing or whatever, I, I was like there. Yeah. I'd like walk him to his car and, <laughs> and offer to drive him to the airport and whatever else. Right. So, um, and, and he, he was one of like four or five that I was sort of stalking. And, um, so one day, um, you know, when, when we're, uh, you know, for this $10 million, this, this round that we got done right before, you know, sort of things happened is, um, I was talking to a gentleman named Adam Dell, Michael Dell's brother, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a yeah he had a hundred and twenty five million dollar fund or whatever, and he wanted to do he was in New York he wanted to do a deal with a West Coast firm, um, specifically Benchmark Capital, which mm-hmm. is you know one of the best funds out there. Um, is that and, the Gurley? Well, yeah, Bill, Bill Gurley. Yep. And so and and so Bill said because he had Bill had actually like randomly went to like three of our restaurants within like a month. Uh, he's, and every time he asked about it, like the host would like pull him around or the host was like, pull him around and show him like this way you got to see it. And you know, like they were big fanatics of it. And he said, anyone who's got a customer who's that excited about it, I want to know more. And so mm-hmm. Bill said, look, I can't lead this um, to, to Adam. Um, but if you're um, interested in leading, I'll follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, so we're talking to Adam and, and, you know, I meet him in, in uh, Palo Alto at Il Fernayo, which was like the yep. deal place back yeah. in, you know, yeah. then. Everyone's just shaking hands. Yep. Yeah, money. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so he, you know, he's like 10 minutes into the meeting. He's like, um, you know, it was like 11 o'clock on a Thursday. We were, we, we didn't, we couldn't make payroll the next day. We didn't have money in the bank to make payroll on Friday morning. Um, we had 65 people um, there. Um, and... Uh, he says, like, within, like, 15 minutes of the conversation, all right, I'm in. And so we're like, this is awesome. You know, we're high-fiving them and, 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 and whatnot. And it was a, deal, a deal was made. deal was made, but, I mean, no terms were discussed. Right. No <laughs> documents were signed. Just, I'm in, yeah. right? Napkin deal. And so we're like, that's great. That's great. And he's like, and we're like, but we're not going to make payroll in the morning. And he's like, well, million dollars do you? And we're like, yeah, a million do us. And so... <laughs> He call. He says, "Give me your wiring information." He calls his office, and his office wires us a million dollars that day. Um, so, eventually, you know, that was a that was a ten and a half million dollar round, and then that got benchmark in, and then Bill got closer to the company, and so Bill got to see that you know, because these are local two sided networks, right? Like a restaurant in Seattle didn't matter to San Francisco; yeah. only restaurants in San Francisco mattered to San Francisco, type of thing, right? And so you'd see these two sides start to accelerate, and so there were all these like growth curves, right, that we had in the business, right? So biggest market, second biggest market, third biggest market type of thing. And so, um, and Bill could see what was happening in the Bay Area, and we could start to look around and start to magnify that across the country and all these other markets, right? Um, they go through their sort of J-curve, right? Yeah. Um, and so you start piling those up, and they can actually add up to quite a bit. And so he liked that. And so we then raised a $34 million round um, after that, and... Um, uh, we basically, um, th- this was like before we did this, whenever there was like an investment in a XYZ type of company, like 10 other XYZ type companies were able to raise money. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, like people would just validate something and then, you yeah. know, it wasn't like an individual company. It was like a whole industry, essentially. It, exactly. market. Yeah. Exactly. So, but, but at that time, 
people weren't like i mean that was like after the crash right mm -hmm. of, of 2001 so you didn't have like too many competitors and so we put the word out to everyone in the market don't come out you know basically because we're we're uh war chest here so uh -huh. don't don't fund any of our competitors type of thing yeah um you know that was the sort of subtle message that was there and so through time um all most all of our competitors at least at that time went away there's a couple now resi and stuff that have come back up mm -hmm. um but at the time and so it gave us like basically six years to go run and build the business and so um so back to your question around ceo so yeah it was it was time for me to move on we I, I felt like at that point in time we had um we had the model figured out we we knew the market plan we had the technology roadmap we sort of knew a lot of the stuff I wasn't, I like the early stage stuff more. Yeah. So I wasn't sure I was still adding. And value. also by this time, I'm guessing with all these rounds of funding, you had significantly diluted mm -hmm. your position in the company. So maybe that attachment, I don't know, was that attachment there as much as it was at the beginning? It, yeah, it was, I felt as power, I felt as like, I like passionate about the business, but I, it was almost in a way where I felt like now I was dragging the business down because I've, I got I got a raise to 175k at that point in time, mm. um, and I just felt like I was a cost on the business rather than like I wasn't providing 175k mm. value on the business, so I didn't want to be there. Mm. Well, at, um, at what point, if at any point, did you say like we've got to monetize this thing? I've got to make my millions, tens of millions, and just move on to the next. I, I was thing. yeah, I was never in it. That, that like I I wanted to do well. I'd never thought about like really you know breaking out and making yeah. money, and and I was probably. My belief was um, at the time, and this is certainly my perspective in hindsight, is how, if I can get my first win, that helps me down the road, right? I don't, I don't need to make all the money in the world off my first win. If I can be successful, like that's going to paint my future down the road. So I was pretty generous with equity, um, and you know, we raised it. We we got caught in a cycle where you know that last thirty four million round was not cheap from a from an equity standpoint, um, but. I was there to do um, what it took to make OpenTable successful. That was my number one thing. I knew if OpenTable was successful, I would be successful. I think I saw, you know, it went on to go public. Uh, and then I think it was acquired after one public yep. for $2.6 billion yep. um, by booking.com. Yep. Is that right? Were you surprised at all about like the fact that it was, you know, la you know it, it lasted, it grew, and it became this huge company? Or, or were you like, no, let's that sounds about right. Like we had the right people in place we had the right process in place we had the right opportunity, right timing. Like it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. So naivete, I, I didn't really think, you know, I just thought it was going to be a U.S. centric company. When I went into it, I didn't know how big the market would be. And, and I didn't know it was going to like go into Japan and Germany, which obviously none of those markets are as big as the biggest, the U S market is the biggest market for reservation centric stuff. Um, and, and, but I didn't, I didn't realize, I mean, we're in like, you know, 30 something countries. I mean, it's pretty awesome to see it now. Um, you know, COVID has, has put a big hole in it and, 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 and whatnot. There were a couple, you know, competitors coming along, which we were still like 90 plus percent market share until COVID hit. And I don't, I haven't talked to anyone at the company in a long time, so I have no idea where it's at now. But, um, and so, but yeah, there were, um, you know, it was really about how do I make, and so I didn't know how big the market was going to be. I just knew I wanted to make this business a success. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's, you know, and, and so when I left OpenTable, um, I actually moved to Chicago at that time and lived in Chicago for 12 years. Cause I, when I, 
actually I moved to Chicago before I left Open Table because I was running the sales force. And that was when we when we raised the 34 million, we went from 14 markets down to four markets, right? Like we um, we laid off 110 people um, in the business. Um, we got down to about 60 people back to where we were because we had raised the 10, we had hired a bunch of people, you know, the dot-com crash hit and we like let, yeah. let a bunch of people go. Um, and, you know, we raised $34 million and then laid off, you know, two thirds of our team. Right. Um, so a lot of people were surprised about that, but, um, the idea was, is how do we make these four markets profitable? Um, and so I ran a, I ran a sales force of those four markets. We had, you know, two people in San Francisco, two people in Chicago, two people in New York and two people in DC. Those were the four markets we kept. Um, and so, um, and then, um, when I, so then when I, when I was in Chicago, you know, the whole story about sort of the Chicago risk tolerance versus the Bay Area risk tolerance and tech, you know, yeah. internet companies there versus the, the Bay Area and that kind of stuff. Um, some great stuff, but I joined um, or, or was one of the first people, the Grubhub team, so Mike and Matt, um, and was there. And that's when I started to realize how big some of these companies could come. Because yeah. like $80 billion delivery and they get 10 to 15% of that take, yeah. you know, that's a 10 to 10, $12 billion revenue opportunity right. for that. I go back and look at reservations. This is a $500 million revenue opportunity yeah. type of thing. Right? It's, a, yeah. it's a, like a magnitude different. And so that's when I actually, like I, I had no idea about market size. But almost, it almost it. feels like that internet boom, like, you know, the open table concept had to happen to bring some of these, you know, restaurants onto the internet in the yep. first place so that it's you know you you could you know you walked so that like Grubhub and all, all these companies could run essentially because otherwise they would have to probably go through the same process of like digitizing some of these processes right yeah I was gonna say you rubbed and then they grubbed but <laughs> yeah. yeah I yeah. still said it anyway there you go yeah <laughs> yeah I think I mean we were I mean we we're certainly the first to bring small businesses online there was you know again um, uh, Sidewalk um, and who was what was uh, City Search City Search had one too um, but they would sell like a uh, basically a yellow pages yeah you know replacement it was static it had some information click to call or whatever type of thing so we were one of the first that brought businesses online we we're especially small businesses we were one of the first that created a two-sided network mm -hmm. um out there um you know there was ebay which was a two-sided network but you know that was a national two-sided network we were sort of these local two-sided networks if you're eBay, you can buy a Pez dispenser from the guy in Florida, yeah. right? Like, doesn't matter. So, um, so there was a lot of things we did first that was kind of interesting, you know, for, from the internet. But yeah, I do think um, it helped pave the way for a lot of these other services, you know, Airbnb and things like yeah. that that just wouldn't. They could, they certainly could have worked and probably, you know, um, would have worked. But I do think we helped, skid, you know, grease that skid a little bit. So, Chuck, if somebody googles you, I'm sure they could see all the businesses that you started in between. Open table and what you're doing now, uh, but I'm I'm more curious about what you're doing now because I read a little bit about it. Uh, how did that idea come about of you know the the investing in uh, I think is it soil to growth S two G yeah seed to growth yep seed to growth I keep saying soil I don't know yeah. why yeah the word soil soil is good it's a <laughs> yeah, good thing soil man. just got to my head yeah um, but the seed to growth uh, how did that come about so. I, with the birth of my first daughter, I started to wonder what the world was going to be like when she got older. And so I started to read all these books, Ecology Comish, National Capitalism, um, Rachel Carlson's um, Silent Spring, and just got like freaked out. Uh, I was reading on peak oil and all that stuff like that. So I bought like two years of food, stuck it in my basement. I put up like all these solar panels on my house. And this was like in Lincoln Park in Chicago, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, really 
Um, I did all this espalier of our fruit tree. I planted, you know, was harvesting all our rainwater and just, you know, was using like bricks to repave our backyard from like that were left over from like the um, the uh, Chicago fire, you know. So yep. it's like, you know, redoing everything, you know. Use, and, and so what I realized, I had this little um, 6,200 square foot piece of land. Like if the world went to shit, my little piece of land wasn't going to save the yeah. world, right? So <laughs> can't fit everybody. It's going to save you maybe. <laughs> Not until all my neighbors come and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you know, sort of grab all my shit. You yeah. know? Um, anyway, so... Um, so I started to think about how can I use the experiences and skill set that I had to hopefully make the world a better place, right? And it was when I first got into it, really thinking about from a from a philanthropic and a nonprofit standpoint. But I didn't know anything about philanthropy or nonprofit, right. and so I said the only thing I know is how to start a bit, how to grow a business. It's right. the only thing I've had experiences with. And I then I started to look at well, how much capital is being deployed towards philanthropic versus what's the capitalism. Right. And it's like capitalism is whatever, you know, 20 trillion and there's 200 billion in philanthropic money. 200 billion is a lot of money, but it's not 20 trillion. Right. Right. So we have to figure out how to make businesses um, actually better for the world. Right. And then so I started thinking about, okay, what is, you know, how do we move from bad to less bad? And then how do we move from actually not even, you know, um, bad to to less bad, but how do we make it positive? Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's taken me a while, but that's where I sort of think about my my journey right now is about how do we prove that um, some of the biggest companies in the world are still to be built and that they will have um, things that are positive for the planet and positive for people built into their model and they will succeed where if you're not starting a business today that has impact built into it, you know, I think right. you're going to be a competitive disadvantage. And, and are you using funds that you've had, or are you raise, or you raised a fund? Yeah. So we so um, so there's a gentleman named Lucas Walton who um, Sam Walton's grandson, mm-hmm. um, and uh, got to know him in Chicago. He lives in Chicago, and he's been our um, you know lead investor in this um, over the last. And so I you know I've got my capital. I've done a fair amount of investing in the impact um, space. Have helped start a number of companies in that space. Um, there was a group called Impact Engine where we've launched, you know, I don't know, sort of 27 companies out of that. Plus, they've invested in a number of others. So, um, you know, really, and, and Impact Engine was all about how do we bring the impact investing mindset to Chicago, both from an entrepreneur standpoint. It's kind of like Techstars and Y Combinator. Yeah. I know you guys know a lot about that stuff. Right. But how do you do that in a for-profit business that has a, you know, um, uh, idea to make the world a better place as well, right? Sure. Um, so I'm and, curious, you know, often people probably think, and perhaps it's a misconception, uh, you know, that profits and like positive, you know, for the environment are like opposite, go in opposite directions. But what have you seen that is proof that yeah. it could go in the same direction? And is there like one or two companies that you think are doing it right or doing it? The yeah. Way? Let me, let me talk yeah. concept first yeah. and then I'll get to companies. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I believe that, um, first of all, constraints are a good thing for entrepreneurs. That's why I think downturns, every time you look at, you look at some of the best companies in the world that have ever started during down right before a recession, within a year before a recession or during a recession, Apple, Microsoft, you may have heard of them. Yep. They are two companies, Charles Schwab. I mean, there's a ton of companies that start up yep. in, um, depressed economic cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So constraints are a good thing on entrepreneurs. They figure out how to work around constraints. You put environment as a constraint around an entrepreneur, they'll figure out a way to work around it to make it like negative environmental impacts. What I'm talking about, like if you put constraints around that stuff, I'm not going to impact that. They will figure out ways around it. 
Is it going to happen immediately? No, but they'll figure they'll we're, we're working on businesses. And so I believe right now, if that, if you're not, so there's, there's five or six reasons. Um, I think that, uh, uh, sort of our, why, if you're, if you're not thinking about an impact business, now you're going to be less competitive. One is human talent. More and more people. I mean, we have a lot of really smart, young, motivated people, right? They're not going to the Philip Morris's of the world or the shells of the world right now. They're going to companies that, you know, agree that they agree with from a philosophical standpoint. Two is natural or uh, financial capital, right? So you're thinking about, um, uh, I mean, when Goldman Sachs and KKR and BlackRock and Blackstone and all these companies are launching impact channels of capital or, or funds, are they perfect at them? They're getting there and, and they're they're learning a lot and you know they're 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 having to change their mindset and whatnot. What we're doing, right? And we got you know we see a lot of family offices moving in this direction. So there is a ton of capital moving in this direction. Three is natural capital, right? Like we're not finding chunks of coal or uh, coal or copper on the ground anymore. All that stuff's like way underground, right? It's really hard to get to. It's really expensive. So if you're not dematerializing your products, making more, you know, energy efficient, biodegradable, biodegradable, compostable, that kind of stuff, um, which is the, sort of the next thing is is four is regulatory, right? You got Oakland and San Francisco suing, you know, Chevron and Shell for climate change, and like it's going to get if you're if you're you know, if you have an, uh, um, an externality in your business model, it's going to be tough because people are coming after you. Five is surety supply, right? Like if you think about weather systems and how they're changing, and if you're, you know, General Mills and you want access to wheat for Annie's, you got to start thinking about better ways to do that than, um, you know, sort of burning everything down to make it work, right? And they know that and they're working on it. Um, but six, it's consumers. All things being equal, and you give the entrepreneurs this ability to, you know, sort of build things that are equal, um, you will see consumers continue to move in this direction, which will drive businesses in this direction. So with that said, so um, we're at the early phases. There's a fair amount of um, um, evidence if you look at uh, on a number of fronts, like diversity from entrepreneur standpoint, and whether it's women-led or BIPOC-led or whatever. So, you know, um, because a lot of those businesses right now um, – actually unfortunately get less capital um um, oftentimes at better valuations um investors are finding better returns there on average um so you're seeing that and then from a um which again whether that's fair to the entrepreneur and a lot of that needs to be figured out although i have a point that could be contentious but i actually think that if you gave if you if you had a business and you had a a, a male running it or a female running it um, and they both went out to raise capital, the male would probably raise, pick a number here for uh, you know ten million. The 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 woman might raise raise like six million or four million. You know to go try and build the same business. Yep. Um, and but, maybe that's because. But would the woman be more successful? Um, I would give them an equal chance, right? Type of thing. So. Because that's where I think constraints, like I think right now is a really good time for entrepreneurs. The, the, the market, the private markets have really suffered over the last, since like the end of, beginning of 22, really. Um, but that's a good thing because there was too much money coming into a lot of these companies and they were spending it. Mm-hmm. They were not investing it, they were spending it, right? Yep. And so now that you, if you give an entrepreneur constraints, they will figure out ways around it. And I'm seeing that now. A lot of our companies now are turning profitable because they've, you know, yes, they've had to let some people go oftentimes, or they've had to like move from, you know, six product, you know, lines to now two, but really focused on those two. Um, 
And so we are starting to see there's a number of companies in our portfolio that are, you know, starting to show really good climate, um, really good human, um, sorry, really good climate efficacy, really good, you know, human efficacy from a um, taking, you know, like reducing sugar, increasing protein, reducing water consumption. So you're starting to see a lot of those businesses now and they're starting to get to these, you know, like for a food business of 35%, if it's sort of um, refrigerated, mm-hmm. you know, or in the cold chain or, you know, can be close to the 50%, you know, gross margins um, if it's if it's center store type of stuff. Now you're starting to see some brands like get to those levels of, of, of efficacy. The challenge will be is do they go, do they follow the same cycle that, you know, uh, Kraft macaroni and cheese did, right? Like it, right. the product today is, is like 40 versions different than the product it was, you know, 10 years ago or mm-hmm. when we were, when you were kids, you know, sort of thing. Right. And so, um, and so we'll see where, how these products migrate. Um, um, but for now, yes, there are products that are getting on, on to par. And we actually think like, if you look at, at cropland as an example, we think that you can get to organic production at a cheaper cost than you can conventional production because there's less inputs on the on the and we think you can keep the yield so the yield loss happens in in the first couple of years you know organic has to be three mm-hmm. years um a field has to go through organic for three years before it can be before it can sell itself as organic right, right. so there's that transition three years where a lot of farmers used to lose a lot of money and there was sort of the j curve of 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 profits right and which is bad if you're you're if you're, if you're a farmer Whole, whole bunch of dynamics there. Yep. You're, if you're a farmer, you farm for 40 years, 25 to 65 or whatever. Um, and if you have one bad year, you can lose the family farm, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of testing you can do. It's really hard. Mother nature has a say, you know, pests have a say, right? Versus, versus like software, you know, you can change every day. Like try something, doesn't work. Take right. it down, try it again, try something else, take it down, you know, so. Not to mention like all the other cyclical things like consumer behavior and yep. like where we are as a society, like meaning like if there's something that is maybe coming out of premium, but it's better quality or better for the environment, the the likelihood of people wanting to spend more money, you know, it, it just depends on where we are, right? Yeah. Like, are we in a recession? Are we in, yeah. you know, where's inflation at? So totally. there's so many factors. Yep. And I feel like I have so many questions that I want to ask, yeah. but I know we got to end the pod. Um, but, you know, it's been just a blast, you know, just learning about your entire story from where you started and where you are now. And I'm sure there's so much more work to do. So uh, we, we're, we're both excited to see where things go for you. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks for having. I love I love this conversation. It's uh Certainly the the most, um, I don't know, intimate is the right word, but most intimate I've been in a, in a podcast. So. Well, we appreciate you being uh, intimate with us. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Awesome. Thanks, Thank guys. You.